from 2 Samuel, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained in Jerusalem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Today we're going to look at a situation today of how the mighty fall. It's a great book written a couple of years ago by a guy named Jim Collins. He's an uh, organizational behavior expert, a guru, a bit of a narcissist, I'll say also, but anyway, pretty good author. And he wrote a book called Good to Great, which is a good primer about organizational behavior. But the book that he followed after was called How the Mighty Fall. The title intrigued me. It just sort of rolls off the tongue. And the phrase, actually, if you don't know, how the mighty fall, or low, how the mighty have fallen, specifically, comes right out of Scripture. In fact, it comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 1, same book we're in now. They're the words of David himself that we're going to talk about today. David himself, when Jonathan, Saul's son, and Saul are killed in battle, J David laments, oh, how the mighty fallen. And now we see those very same words at play in the life of King David himself. King David, the king of the Jews, the rock star, the guy that everybody loves. An example of how, in fact, the mighty fall. You know, all summer we've been working through this, this uh, mini-series, if you will, about David and Saul and Jonathan and all of this. And if you've not been here, I invite you to go back on the website and look at the sermons because it's a, it's a story, it's a historical narrative, it's a, it's a progression of thought. And we've seen that David has risen slowly and patiently in his power and his kingship. And right now, at this very moment, 2 Samuel 11, David is at the very top of his game. It's an, he's been on a roller coaster going up, 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 up up the hill, and he's right here. He doesn't know it. The top of his game, and from here on in, after this incident with Bathsheba we're going to dive into, it's a crash and a burn. Now, you never really know, and the thing is, if you think about it, you never know you're at the top of your game until you're not, right? You never know you're at the best part of your life until you're no longer there. David's life begins to unravel he becomes a shadow of the man he once was. He leaves destruction and carnage in his wake. So what happened? That's the question. What happened? How did this man, David, ruddy and handsome, the apple of God's eye, this shepherd boy from nowhere who rises to prominence, how does someone fall so far so fast? And the bigger question, I think, for this morning, for us, is should we really even be surprised? Because, see, the story about David isn't about David. The story about David is about you, about the person sitting in your pew, about the per person preaching to you from this pulpit. That's me, by the way. Because you know what? Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. This story, this this is a two-part sermon series, well, a two-part of the larger series, I guess. So today we're going to look at, we're going to look at David, we're going to diagnose the problem of 
how and why that might he fall, fall hard. And secondly, we're going to look at God's plan, God's solution. So if you come out of today going, man, Rodriguez, what a bummer that was, stay with it, because next week we see how God redeems the problem. But today we're going to look at two points as we diagnose how the mighty fall in David, the king of the Jews. First, the first reason David fell is that David, like you and me, underestimated the power of his own sin. That's the first problem. That's the biggie. And then secondly, David underestimated the mercy of God. So David underestimated two things, his own sin and the mercy of God. So our text opens this morning. David is, as I said, at the top of his game, the height of his power. He doesn't know it yet. He doesn't know it yet. It's kind of like the stock market or the housing bubble. You know, you never know. You're at the top until you're no longer there, right? So you look back and go, man, I should have sold. I should have bought. But we all know, but David doesn't know he's at the top of his game right this minute, chapter 11, until after the fact, post facto. And truth be told, David, the king of the Jews, He's killing it, man. He's doing an amazing job. The dude is a rock star. The northern and southern kingdoms are united. The Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence has been carted all over, hither and yon, is back in Jerusalem where it belongs. David's throne is secure. His enemies wiped away. You might even say that David could go down to the Hallmark store and buy that T-shirt, right? Life is good. And that's actually precisely the problem. <laughs> Life is good for David. Our verse tells us, you know, and let me show you this. You'll see it when I point it out to you. This is, the, this is the root of the problem. Look at it again if you want, or I'll read it to you. The very first verse. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. He didn't go himself. And his servants with him, and all Israel. And they without David, ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, listen, David remained in Jerusalem. Stop there. That is the key to the whole problem. David's, ar- David's army is out in the, in the psalm, you know, fighting the battle, slogging it out, fighting and dying for him, frankly. Blood and sweat and death. And David is at home, right? Living la vida loca. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> and verse 2 says, this, I love the way the Hebrew phrases it. It's almost like, oh, and by the way, verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Did you notice something important? Again, there's no detail in Scripture ever put there that's not important. Notice something. David's at home while the army's out fighting the war, where he should be as the king leading the fight. But not only that, not only is he home while they're out fighting for him, he's asleep on the couch. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, drinking beer and playing Xbox. I don't know what he's doing. And he just decides at the spur of the moment, the text seems, to go for a stroll. And he just happens to see this really hot woman across the way, and he just hap- who just happens to be taking a bath. What a coincidence, right? Wow! No. 
David knew she'd be there. After all, you don't know this in the text, but I'm going to show you something. This woman bathing, her name is Bathsheba. There's a connection between these two. Let me show you. She was the daughter of one of David's best fighters. Connection there. She was the granddaughter. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted counselors. Bathsheba was also the wife, which means she's married already, of one of the inner circle of his honored soldiers. Here's my point. He knew what he was doing. David knew what he was doing. This is no chance encounter. This is no accident. But he did it anyway. Know why? Because he underestimated the power of his own sinfulness. You know, David, here's the thing, right? You know, we talk about, most people hear morality as something which is restrictive of our free will. Nonsense. God gives us morals and rules and ethics to, to give us boundaries, right? If you've ever raised kids, you know, kids need boundaries. There's nothing worse than a kid who the parents say, here's the keys to the uh, Mercedes kid, I'll see you Monday. Yeah, good luck with that one. David should have been with the army in battle. David should have been being productive. David should have stayed off the roof. He knew better. He had a thing for women. He's got four wives or five. He should only have one. You only need one. And it's biblical, by the way. But by the time, you know, and the thing I want you to see here, by the time he saw her, and again, it's no accident, it's too late. And if you look at verse 4, it happens fast. It's a slow burn, right? The slow progression of David neglecting his responsibilities. He goes for a walk. He sees her. Oh, who's that? And then verse 4, so David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Boom, boom, boom. And that's how sin works, isn't it? Evil always works this way. How the mighty fall, actually, friends, is not, is not usually this spectacular event. No, man. How the mighty fall is a series, and this is true for you and me, by the way, not just David. How we fall is a series of small, bad decisions that snowball. A slow, smoldering wick that compounds over time, and then boom, everything falls apart. We all fall down. We've all been there, and I want you to see this. I don't want you to read this text with some sort of snobby Christian morality because you're going to miss the whole point. The point of the story is that we are David in this story. We, we all fall down. We all underestimate the power that sin has over us. You know, as past, I was thinking about this this past week. Isn't it strange how those, we see those in leadership roles and they always seem to let us down? You ever notice that? You know, turn on CNN or Fox News. You'll see my point, right? That every person we see in leadership, they let us down, right? Joe Biden and the border crisis. Donald Trump and his vulgar tweets. We cry about the corruption of politicians. And then we're surprised, right? I can't believe he would do this. But who's the bigger sucker? The guy that does, that commits these sins, which we all do, or those of us who think that he should somehow be exempt? Who's the bigger sucker, them or us? 
Friends, we are all sinners. We all underestimate the power of evil to control our lives. Who are the bigger suckers, the mighty that fall or those that actually follow them? Here's my question. Here's the thing. What sins are controlling you? You know what they are, so do I. We've all got besetting sins, you might say, a thorn in the flesh, Paul called it. What small decisions do you make? Oh, God's not going to care if I sleep in on Sunday morning. God's not going to care if I tithe. God's not going to care if I skip. God's not going to care if I do fill in the blank. You know what? Gut check. Be careful. God does care, and he cares because he loves you. And it's a slow burn, man, and if you don't nip that in the bud, boom, it's going to catch you. How the mighty fall is not in big, gigantic sins, but a series of small sins compounded that bring us to the place that we never would, I never would have expected, sleeping with your best friend's wife and then killing him to cover your tracks. David did not wake up that day and say, I've got a great idea. You know, Lord, how about if we do this today? How about if I wake up and sleep with Uriah's wife and then I'll kill him? Yeah, that's a good plan. He didn't do that. Friends, each of us is capable, even David, ruddy and handsome, to become an adulterer and a murderer. Why? Because we underestimate our own sinfulness. Anybody here know the name Philip Zombardo? If you do, I'll give you a nickel. Anybody? No? Philip Zombardo was a uh, Stanford psychologist back in the 70s in something which actually became to be known social psychology. Social psychology is the study of an individual in a group. Sociology is the study of groups. Social psychology is the individual in the group, right? Stereotyping, racism, all that kind of stuff falls into the realm of social psychology, of which I spent a lot of time studying in grad school. Philip Zimbardo, 1970, Stanford professor, did an experiment where he took a group of graduate students, right? Because graduate students will do anything for money. I did. Well, not anything. And he took a group of grad, grad students and he split them up into prisoners and prison guards. And they, he put the prison guards in uniforms and the prisoners in uniforms, and he said, I want you to treat these people like they're prisoners of yours. And within five days, one, two, three, four, five, the prisoners were, were cruel, they were abusive, they were vindictive, Sorry, the guards were cruel, vindictive, and uh, abusive. The prisoners became victims of the circumstances. It became so bad that Zimbardo had to shut it down in six days. Six days. And later on, and, and Philip Zimbardo, who's no Christian, said, I'm paraphrasing a bit, he was astounded at, given the right set of circumstances, the cruelty that a human being will, will visit on another person. The even crazier thing is when everybody got out of it, the guards and the prisoners suffered from what we would call now PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But the point I want you to see here, friends, is that people like them in the Zapruder study, oh, sorry, in the Zimbardo study, Zapruder's got it shot, get the film for Kennedy. In the Zimbardo study, people are capable, listen, of incredible evil that they never expected. They are, David was, and so are you. So be careful not to underestimate your sin, not to underestimate your brokenness, friends. But then the second thing I want you to see is as we look at that and be conscious of our own brokenness, the second thing that brought 
David down was that David underestimated. He underestimated his own sin and underestimated God's mercy. So here's the thing. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. She comes back, reports the news to him. And David, who is the consummate fixer, gets an idea. Again, here's the snowball, the, snow, the slow burn. He's the consummate fixer. He goes, ah, I know what I'll do. I'm going to send for Uriah, her husband, bring him back from the battle, and hopefully they can spend some time together, and you know how that goes. And then nine months from now, Uriah can come back and, and, uh, and enjoy the birth of his new son. So David sends for Uriah, brings him back, and says, hey, Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet, which is a Jewish metaphor for, well, you know, but Uriah doesn't bite. Go back and look at it again. It's fascinating. Uriah, David brings him back. and says, Hey, Uriah, why don't you go down, you know, hang out with Bathsheba for a while and do what men and women do when they're married. And, and Uriah, says, David, uh, Uriah says to him, David, how can, I go in, how can I go out in the field? How, sorry, how can I go back to my wife and lay with her when the men in the field are fighting and dying for you and for the Lord? How can I do that? which is incredibly ironic. That's just what David has done, you see. Uriah did, was faithful, where, where uh, David was not. Uriah does the right thing where David fails, and David is left with a terrible decision. Here's the problem. Adultery was punishable by death, and David knows one of two people is going to die, either him or Uriah. So what does he do? David, the consummate fixer, in a perverse maneuver, writes a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, seals it up, gives it to Uriah, says, Uriah, take this to Joab. Joab opens the letter. It says, yeah, take Uriah, put him in the middle of the fighting, and when he's fighting, pull back. So he does it. Uriah is in the middle of the battle where David should have been. Uriah is being faithful where David should have been. And Uriah is murdered in David's place. David, the apple of God's eye, right? Scripture calls him. Ruddy and handsome, Scripture calls him. The slayer of giants has become a couch potato, a liar, and a murderer. So how do the mighty fall? Friends, two things. We underestimate our own sin, and we underestimate the mercy of God. Think of it like this. What if David, what if David had done the right thing? What if David really had trusted that God could bail him out? What if God, David really trusted in God's mercy and came clean and paid for his sin on his own? What if? But that's not what happened. David does not trust in God's mercy. David solves the problem on his own. Friends, I don't, somebody once said, I forget who it was, might have been Tim Keller, might not have been, that sin is a parasite. Left unchecked, it will destroy you, the host and cause immeasurable suffering. The only solution, which we look at next week, is to come to the Lord, repent, and lean on his mercy to forgive you by the power of Jesus Christ on the cross in your place. Remember, friends, that no sin is insignificant. Nothing. No sin does not draw us away from God. Even the little tiny steps compound until they spiral and grow. There's an interesting line my mom used to say to me when I was a kid, you probably heard it before, oh, what a tangled web we weave. You know what? When at first we do deceive. 
It's not Shakespeare. It's a guy named Scott, actually. Friends, the only way to stop this, the cancer of sin in your life is to stop it. So here's my question. As I'm going to wrap up today. Good news is next week. Where can you stop? What is it? What do you need to repent of? You know what it is. So do I. Where is that slow, that wick, that slow wick burning in your life that you know is there and you know you got to put it out and you refuse to do it? Look, there is nothing you can do that God cannot fix. There is nothing you can do that God did not solve except for one thing, and that is if you keep it from him. This is the sin of Judas, right? The betrayer of Jesus, who betrays Jesus. All the apostles betrayed Jesus, every single one of them. But Judas made the fatal mistake of taking matters into his own hands and taking his own life, you see. The key to Christian life, friends, is not moral perfection, but repentance and coming back to the Lord, recognizing the brokenness of our own sin and leaning on the mercy of Jesus Christ to save us from it. The cross of Jesus is sufficient. The cross of Jesus covers all sin. It covers David, as we'll see next week, but only because, as we'll see, David repents and brings those sins to him. Oh, to quote David, ironically, oh, how the mighty fall. But God's will is not done with David yet. He will never fully recover, David. There will be consequences to his actions. There will be suffering to his decisions. But thanks be to God, Jesus is bigger than our brokenness. And Jesus Christ can save even the mighty who fall. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for David, for his story and for the scripture which pulls no punches, describing his and our human frailty. Father, keep us close to your word. Keep our hearts vigilant about our own sins. Remind us that we, like David, are in a war, and it is only by the power of Jesus Christ and his mercy that we can be saved. In his name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.